Hey there, this is Zulema Bebel, co-founder of Impact Alpha. Thanks for listening. Impact Briefing is a quick snapshot of the week's stories from the leading Impact Investing Daily. There's much more to Impact Alpha, Dioflow, job postings, and a morning email brief. Podcast listeners get a year subscription for half off with the code BRIEFING50. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe. Now enjoy the show. From the virtual newsroom of Impact Alpha, this is your Impact Briefing for the week of Friday, April 17th. I'm Brian Walsh. Today, Impact Alpha's David Bank will discuss the story of the week. Hi, David. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. And we also have Lanika Little, who will profile this week's Agent of Impact. Hi, Lanika, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Brian. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. Sustainable funds lost a bit less than the market as a whole in the volatile first quarter, according to Morningstar. The relative outperformance of so-called ESG funds reflects their reduced exposure to fossil fuels, whose prices have fallen in recent months. Investors are responding and moved a record $10.5 billion into U.S. ESG funds in the first quarter of 2020. The Paycheck Protection Program has run out of money, at least until Congress cuts a new deal. Last week, we talked about the obstacles to getting PPP funds to underserved communities outside traditional banking channels. This week, the government added non-bank lenders like fintech firms PayPal, Intuit, and Square. The World Bank's catastrophe bonds were supposed to backstop emerging markets in a pandemic, but they still haven't paid off. If triggered, these so-called cap bonds would release over $130 million to combat COVID. What's holding up the money? The full brunt of the virus has yet to be recorded hitting eligible countries. In the meantime, investors are making yields as high as 14%. I'm joined now by David Bank to discuss his latest column on Impact Alpha. David, this week you called out universal owners. Who are they? Brian, universal owners is an idea that's been around for a little while, but it's taken on new saliency in the current context, I think. So they are the largest capital asset owners in the world. Think large sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, insurance funds um, that are so big that they can't escape a market downturn. So the, the leading edge of them or the self-identified champions of this idea say that these universal owners have to take on responsibility for the whole global financial system, the, the the sustainability of that system itself. They can't sort of dodge and weave around a downturn. And that's always been a somewhat hypothetical situation. So they were at the leading edge of talking about climate risk and, and also to a lesser extent, the risk of social inequality. But frankly, we now have that very kind of systemic downturn that they had been worried about. And so in my column, I just pointed to them as an example of the kind of private capital response that's needed to bring the world out of the looming depression. Um, It's not just a government bailout question. It's also a change in the way private capital is allocated. Yeah. And as you referenced in your column, there was a remarkable letter last month in March uh, where three of these leading uh, super tankers of capital uh, really made a warning to companies and the asset managers they work with that they should not focus on short-term profits and that they did not want to just invest in companies that maximize returns at the expense of the environment, workers, communities, or other stakeholders, and that those are not attractive investment targets for them. But now that they've they've talked the talk, uh, how are they going to walk the walk as 
the world goes through this global pandemic. Well, as you say, what that letter was, which was the starting point of this of the column, was was really a shot across the bow that said, you know, we're we're serious about this. We we want you to move forward. And as you say, the question is, well, what does that really mean? I was struck this week by a, an analysis that came out of Morgan Stanley, and it was talking about the pressure that they expected on companies because of rising employee benefit demands, and that they thought the COVID crisis had really put a spotlight on, in particularly in the U.S., the lack of sick pay, the rise of gig workers who who now can't get unemployment insurance, um, the you know uh, still spotty healthcare coverage and and whatnot, and that the U.S. Um, share of compensation that goes to worker benefits is like a third of that of the G7 countries on average. And so they said the COVID crisis is going to put pressure for companies to pay their workers better and, and give them better benefits. Of course, in the in the Morgan Stanley. Uh, kind of lingo that was seen as cost pressure on companies, but of course it's it's also a, a, a requirement for a more resilient economy. And so the question is, will companies face the market pressure to keep costs low and pay workers less and offer them less benefits, or will the investors say, no, the kind of companies we want to invest in are the ones that treat workers well, provide good benefits, help build healthy communities, families, you know, thriving resilient, prosperous countries. So it's really a signal of possibly a change in the direction of, you know, of global capital. And which is, which is, again, why I wanted to point it out, because so much of the conversation today has just been about a government response. And I think Impact Alpha wants to make the case that there's a private capital response that also can point in the direction of the, of the public good. Right. And, and, the, and the four recommendations you offer to these universal owners, uh, one of them is to forge a new social contract. And you just touched on that a little bit. Another recommendation you have is for these universal owners to reprice risk. I don't think any investor priced in the risk of a pandemic happening this year. Uh, so where else are investors potentially mispricing risk? Well, as you say, Brian, everybody said, oh, nobody could have expected a pandemic. Although if you actually look back in the literature, you know, there were lots of people predicting, you know, pandemics, if, if not this particular pandemic, that, you know, pandemics were were coming. But likewise, there have been a raft of reports, investment reports about climate risk. So when those risks hit, nobody should say, you know, nobody told us about those either. Yet, I think there's an acknowledgement that the market, by and large, has not fully priced in climate risks. Um, you know, it comes up now and again, you know, PG&E bankruptcy because of wildfires. And there's a few other notable examples. But on the whole, the markets have not fully priced in climate risk. And if you took in both the risks on the one hand and the opportunities on the other hand of the low carbon transition, and then you took in the risks and frankly, the opportunities of, of driving a different kind of social contract where there was more broad-based prosperity, you'd also come to a different set of investment calculations. So again, fully pricing in the so-called externalities and, and the risks um, would change the investment calculus. Um, and these universal owners, because they have all the, the assets, are in a position to, to drive that shift. You also recommend universal owners hold the corporations that they invest in accountable. How do you foresee them doing that? Well, we're just entering the annual general meeting season, and there's lots of shareholder resolutions. And in fact, the environmental and social issues so-called ESG issues are the lion's share of the shareholder resolutions. The question's always been whether they can 
um, a pass in the in the vote, and then b whether the corporations will you know kind of honor them um, uh, e even if they do pass. But in terms of passing, that requires the holders of those shares to vote. And the in in this letter you referenced, these large universal owners made clear that they were watching their asset managers that um, that hold those shares and holding them to account to vote in the way that they have committed to these owners to vote. And then that could tip some number of these shareholder resolutions and then corporate boards uh, will be accountable to the, those shareholders. So it's basically a, a, sh a shareholder democracy uh, kind of play. And they are, you know, again, uh, you know, suggesting that they're that they're serious. And I would say, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the is in the eating. And we'll see what how, how folks vote in this upcoming um, um, proxy season. And I'm sure you'll be covering it in the pages of Impact Alpha. We'll be watching it closely. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, David. And now it's time for this week's Agent of Impact. Lanika Little, who are we featuring this week? This week, we're featuring Dr. Kazmikia Corbett. She's the 34-year-old scientific lead on the coronavirus team at the National Institute of Health. Corbett stunned CNN's Anderson Cooper and Sanjay Gupta when she said this. We are targeting fall for the emergency use. Um, so that would be, you know, for healthcare workers and people who might be in constant contact um, and, and, and risk of being exposed over and over. And then for the general population, our target goal is for um, next spring. And that is if all things go well and if these phase one, phase two and phase three clinical trials work simultaneously for the good, our plan is to have people vaccinated all over the world by next spring. Just to put that in context, in 2003, NIH scientists took 20 months to get a SARS vaccine into stage one clinical trials. Corbett and her team at the NIH Vaccine Research Center launched the world's first trial of a COVID-19 vaccine on March 16th, just 66 days after Chinese scientists revealed the genetic sequence of the novel coronavirus online. The Meyerhoff Scholars Program at the University of Maryland merits a special mention as well. The program puts Black students on research PhD tracks. In addition to Corbett, Meyerhoff scholars include U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams and Darian Cash, a scientist at Moderna who is working with Corbett on the vaccine. Thanks to Dr. Corbett, we might be closer to getting a vaccine than anyone could have expected. And that's why she's our agent for this week. Thanks, Lenika. And thanks to Dr. Corbett for all that you're doing. You can see Dr. Corbett and all of our agents of impact on Instagram at Impact Alpha. That's it for your Impact Briefing this week. You can read more about all of these stories at impactalpha.com. Only subscribers receive full access to Impact Alpha content, including deal flow, job postings, and a Slack channel. Thank you for listening, and thanks to David Bank, Dennis Price, and our producer Isaac Silk, who also wrote the theme song. I'm Brian Walsh, head of Impact for the fintech company Liquidnet. Make sure you check back next week for the latest Impact Investing news. Until then, please take care.